The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is in a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, we reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get where we're, we're going today. Lord, we love you, and we just want to take a minute, Lord, in the chaos of Sunday and the weekend and Super Bowl, and just to pause, Lord, and to remember that we are here for you and that you are here to meet with us. Lord, we pray, even as we opened singing this morning, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts hearts that are good ground, ready to receive your word. There's so many times where the truth of your scriptures are hard to believe, difficult to apply, tough to wrestle with, Lord, and so we need soft hearts. We know that only comes from you. And so in your kindness, would you soften us to your word? Would you do what you've been doing for so long, what only you can do? Would you take your word, get it into our hearts, power of your Holy Spirit, such that we are changed? We love you. We need you for all these things. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, it's good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there should be some somewhere in the seat backs in front of you. You can grab that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we jump into that this morning, I want to make sure you didn't miss picking up one of our Lent guides out in the lobby. So we have put a ton of time and energy and resources into these guides that are going to kind of walk us through the next six weeks starting next Sunday as a church family. So in case you haven't been around and aren't familiar, this Wednesday kicks off a season in the church calendar known as Lent. And over the course of Lent, we as a church focus on particular spiritual practices or disciplines or habits. So last year we did prayer. If you remember, we spent all of Lent working through the Lord's Prayer, how to become a people of prayer. This year we're talking about mission. As we're defining it, demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. What you 
might call evangelism or mission, sharing your faith. And so each week in this guide, just to give you an idea of how it works, we've got a teaching text that we're going to be preaching from on Sundays. We've got a place for notes for you to take notes during the sermon. We've got a weekly practice for you to do on your own over the course of the week. And then we've also got your community group discussion guide. So I know I said last week, if you're not a book person, you can pick this up online. I am very much walking that back this week. It is online, but it's there as like a last resort. Oops, I forgot my guide this week. We really want you to pick this up, take it with you. It's meant to kind of journey with you over the course of the series as you're kind of working through it together with our church family and with your community. So pick this up. We've got more than enough copies to get you through Lent. Now, my job this week is to help kind of connect the dots for us over why six weeks of focusing on mission makes a ton of sense coming out of where we've been over the past five weeks. So it's kind of like a bridge sermon today over here's what we've been saying the past five weeks, here's where we're going, the mission of God, and here's why a lot of this makes sense for this to come after this. And in order to kind of get us thinking along where we're headed today, I want you to think back a decade ago to 2014. If you can kind of put yourself there in your mind, 2014. Let me just kind of set the stage for you of what this year was like. Parents everywhere were completely losing their minds listening to the new hit song, Let It Go, for the one millionth gajillionth time. We all dumped ice water on our heads to raise awareness for ALS. Kim Kardashian and Kanye West spent $12 million on their wedding in Italy. Did not last very long. And Ellen DeGeneres broke the internet with her Oscars selfie. And most importantly, 2014, for our purposes today, is that 378 people in the town of St. Petersburg, Florida, brought back a nationwide trend of paying for the person behind them in the Starbucks drive-thru. It was called Pay It Forward. Anybody remember the Pay It Forward trend? Like three of us, sweet. Here's what it was. It didn't start in 2014, but it had its viral moment that year. And the whole idea was that you would go through Starbucks and the person in front of you in the Starbucks drive-thru would pay for your order. And then you, because of the generosity of that person, would turn around and pay for the person behind you. It was like a global moment of kindness. We all loved it. It was wonderful. Everybody was like, yes, pay it forward is the thing. Everybody loved it, except for me. I hated pay it forward great disdain for this trend. And you can call me a curmudgeon, you can call me whatever you want. Here's why I was not a fan of Pay It Forward, because when I go to Starbucks, I get the same thing at Starbucks that I get at every other coffee shop in America, a small black coffee. Or in Starbucks lingo, a tall Pike Place roast. Get the same thing. You know how much a small black coffee costs at Starbucks? $2.78 after tax. Do you know what's not fun for someone who gets a $3 coffee? To have the person in front of them in line pay for their $3 coffee just so they can turn around and pay $15 for somebody's triple shot, bougie, mocha, frappuccino, whatever. It's not fun for me. And so I spent a lot of 2014 avoiding Starbucks or when I went through Starbucks saying, please, Lord, not today. Do not let the person in front of me pay for my order because either I'm going to be grouchy and I'm going to be the one to cut it off or I've got to spend way too much money for my small black coffee. Now, what does that have anything to do with what we're talking about today? Well, a lot, actually. You see, the Starbucks pay it forward trend is a small, very silly example of what is actually a prominent theme in the scriptures. The whole Christian life is, this is kind of corny, but bear with me. The whole Christian life is a type of paying it forward. Or let me say it this way. All of the Christian life is lived in response to God. 
all of the Christian life, everything God commands and calls and directs us to do in the scriptures is always grounded first and foremost in what he has done for us as his people. God does the first initiating work, and then he calls us to live in response to him. We see this really clearly in John chapter 13. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and at the end of his teaching, he says very clearly, as I have loved you, so you now also must love one another. This is a theme in the scriptures. What God has done for us, his initiating act, then propels us into life for him. All of the Christian life is lived in response to God. And that includes, as we'll see today in 2 Corinthians 5, the practice of mission. You see, over the past five weeks, we've been trying to highlight from the scriptures this beautiful truth that our God is the God who seeks. He seeks from the beginning. He seeks the runaway. He seeks the broken. He seeks the prideful and the downcast. Story after story reminding us that our faith is grounded in this reality, not us seeking God, but God seeking us. What I hope to show us today from the scriptures is that that seeking that God does to us is never meant to stop with us. But rather, here's kind of my one sentence summary of 2 Corinthians 5, God seeks to send. God seeks to send. That's where we're heading today. Let me show you this from our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just walk through it a little bit at a time together, and then I'll highlight some things for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 11. Therefore, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are known as, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So apparently some people are discrediting Paul's apostleship, his role within the early church, saying he's kind of out of his mind. Like when he worships, he talks in tongues too much, and he worships too boldly and too crazily. And Paul says, yeah, there are times where I appear out of my mind. That's for God. But there are other times where I'm very much in my right my mind, and that's for you. Here's why, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, that being Christ, has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at people like we used to look at people. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, everything he's just been describing, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. All right, pause there for a little bit. What I want to do is draw out for us some things that Paul is highlighting about what Christ has done for his people. So I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this. If you've been around the church, probably none of this is new, but I just want to highlight everything Paul lays out that Christ has done for his people. There's four things. We'll hit them quick. Number one, the first thing he says Christ does for his people is this. Christ controls us with his love. Christ controls us, that is his followers, with his love. The picture Paul is trying to paint 
is that the way Christ's love has gripped his heart is so strong, he has no choice but to willingly and joyfully lay down his life for the sake of the gospel bearing fruit in this church. It controls me, Paul says. And that sounds like a negative thing, especially in our day and age, right? Like, I don't want anybody to control me. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Like, I'm free. I can make my own decisions, make my own choices. But for Paul here, control is a beautiful thing because it's not that he has given up his free will. It's not that Christ just kind of takes over his body and he's like AI robot Paul. What's happening here is that God's love is so strongly capturing his heart that on the one sense, it feels like I have no other option, but on the other sense, I don't want any other option. A really good example of this is what you might call the honeymoon stage of a new dating relationship. So this is how it worked out when we were in high school especially, is that a buddy of mine would start dating someone new and they would be called, we used to call it being whipped. I don't know if that's offensive. I, everything's offensive these days, but I'm sorry if that's offensive. Buddies of mine would date, start dating this girl and they'd get so infatuated with her. And so you'd be hanging out and they'd be like, oh, sorry guys, I have to go get her Sonic. And you're like, you said have to, but you don't have to. He's like, no, I have to. And so they would leave, regardless of what the plans were, regardless of how much fun we were having, they were like, I gotta go. And so they would go to Sonic and they'd go drop it off. And you knew, they said they didn't want to, they said they had to, but they really deep down wanted nothing more than to bring this girl Sonic. Jessica, their names are always Jessica. <laughs> no offense if your name is Jessica. Right, so it's so gripped, like their infatuation with this individual has so gripped them that on the one sense, it's like, I have no choice, but on the other sense, I don't want any other choices. And Paul says that's what the love of Christ does in the hearts of his people. It controls us to where we say, okay, in one sense, it's like I can't do anything else but follow God with my life. But in another sense, I don't want to do anything else but follow God with my life. His love has that compelled me. that It's like it's controlling me, that he is living through me. Second thing Paul says Christ does is that he dies for us. He dies for us. See that in verses 14 and 15. Right? He has died, one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We know this in the story of the gospel, right? Christ Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, lowers himself, humbles himself to enter into humanity, walks on earth. He's perfect. He never sins, never goes against the will of the Father in thought, in word, or in deed. And yet at 33 years old, he's betrayed by one of his closest 12 friends. He's unjustly put on trial by both the Jews and the Romans, and he dies the most horrific, brutal of deaths on the cross that was reserved in that culture for the worst of the worst of the worst. The only one who was ever perfect dies the sinner's death. And in dying, Paul says, he gives life to all who trust in him. That's how this whole thing works. Christ dies the death that we deserve to give us life we don't. That is the good news of the gospel. The third thing Paul says he does, if that's not good enough, is that he makes us new creations. Look at again at verse 16. From therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is a follower of Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Christ not only dies to forgive us of our sins, he also, according to the text, recreates us into a whole new person. So when you become a Christian, it is so much more beautiful and glorious than just a legal transaction between you and God. It is so much more complex and profound and wonderful than just God sees I'm a sinner, but he tells me I'm forgiven, legal debt is paid and done away with. He actually, Christ Jesus, makes us 
new. Before we meet Jesus, we are living what the scriptures call the old self, the old man. We live according to what is called our flesh. The flesh in the scriptures is our sinful desires that keep us enslaved to our every women passion. So sin in the Bible is not simply something you do or don't do. Hope you know that. Sin is not just actions you commit or fail to commit. Sin is a corrupting sickness and disease within our souls. And so when Christ comes and he dies and he rises again and we put our faith in him, he doesn't just say, I see all that, but now you're forgiven. Good job. Keep it going. Way better. He completely remakes us into a new creation. He sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us such that you now can actually glorify God as a follower of Jesus. Did you know that? That you can actually say no to sin and yes to holiness? That you can actually surrender and serve him with your life? You can actually walk in obedience to God's commands? That what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I don't do the things I want to do and I do what I don't want to do, doesn't actually have to be true of you anymore. So you actually can say no to the things you don't want to do. You can say yes to the greater things you desire. You actually can live for God. He's made us new creations. And then again, if that's not enough, one more. He reconciles us to God. He reconciles us to God. He sets us back in right relationship as it was originally designed to be. You remember, right, the very first sermon of this series, we kicked off the year, Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. You and I and all of humanity were meant to live in perfect relationship with God. Communion and intimacy and closeness and loving relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. And what is lost in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, what is lost is our communion with God. We can no longer, in our natural state, in the flesh, walk with God. We cannot be in relationship with him, be close to him now or into eternity. Without Christ, we are God's enemies. But Christ comes and he lives and he dies and he rises again to do something about that broken relationship. The good news of salvation is not just that we are washed and made clean and forgiven. It's that we are now able to once again have relationship with our heavenly father the way it was designed to be. We can now be his children again. We can now be in relationship with him again. We can now have communion with him again. That's the very thing that makes heaven heaven. Do you know that? Heaven is not just awesome because it's streets of gold and we're walking around doing whatever we're going to be doing. Heaven is awesome because once again, we get the fullness of communion with our father. So it makes it so beautiful. That's what we long for. That's what our souls crave when we experience the brokenness of the world is not just the good news that everything that is broken will be made right again, but the good news that our relationship with God, which is broken, will be brought back into completion and fullness. To walk with him forever, just like in the garden. And so just look, right? Nine verses, how much Paul says Christ has done for us. He loves us. He draws us close with his love. He controls us and lives through us. Though perfect, he dies a sinner's death that we deserve on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He recreates us from our old self, enslaved to the flesh, to become new creations, free to worship God. He reconciles us and brings us back into our loving relationship with the Father. Do you see how incredible the good news of the gospel really is? Like, does don't grow cold to this. Let it make your heart sing that by the love of the Father and only by the love of the Father and through the work of the Son and only through the work of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit and only by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are set free, redeemed, reconciled, ransomed, and brought back into relationship with God. That is the good news of our lives for those of us who claim Christ. And then you get to verse 20. 
And this is what Paul says in light of everything he just laid out for us. Therefore, good Bible reading tip. There's a therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore, he's connecting the text. That's free. You're welcome. Therefore, because of everything I just laid out for you, the redeeming power of God, we are ambassadors for Christ, an identity. You are now a representative of a new kingdom. Before you are a citizen of America, before you're a citizen of anywhere else in the world, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. You are his representative, his ambassador to do this, God making his appeal through us. Or as he says it in verse 18, Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what Paul is saying. In light of all of the beauty and glory of what Christ has done, seeking you when you were lost and prideful and downcast and broken, here is who you are now, ambassadors for Christ. In other words, God seeks to send. You see that? That's the connection between what we've been discussing over the past five weeks and where we're heading over the next six. God seeks. That's what we've been talking about. The God who seeks. You could very easily call the next six weeks the God who sends. That's why he seeks. That's why he comes after us. He seeks us to send us. We now go because Christ first came. This is what God does. His reconciling work, his miraculous, powerful, glorious seeking was not and is not and is never meant to stop with us. And if we're able to step back, we actually see this thread all over the place. We actually see it in every single story we just walked through over the past five weeks. Did you, did you catch this as we were walking through these stories about how God's seeking of these individuals never stopped with those individuals? Let me just show you this. Adam and Eve, right? Genesis chapter 3. They sin. They rebel against God. God seeks them out in their hiding and their sin and their shame. And he promises, now that I have found you, here's the promise. Through the offspring of the woman will come a son who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he seeks out Adam and Eve because from the line of Adam and Eve comes his greatest redemption in history, the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. You think about Moses, right? A murderer, a runaway in Midian, hiding in the desert. God shows up, burning bush. Boom, what's up, Moses? He's like, you found me. He's like, I know, I'm God. Seeks him out. What does he do? Hey, I've got a plan for you. Through you, I'm gonna what? Redeem my people, Israel. God seeks Moses for a greater redemption purpose for Israel, Rahab. Broken person in a broken place, in a broken city, hears the, about the power of God because the news of what he's done for Israel reaches Jericho, and God seeks her and uses her as a very central key person in the story of giving Israel the long-awaited promised land, and then a bunch of generations later, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. It's through Rahab that the Messiah comes. Samson, all the mess and brokenness of Samson. God keeps seeking him. And even in the broken and messed up ending, God uses Samson's life to redeem Israel from the Philistines. Or Elijah, downcast and depressed Elijah. God seeks him with his presence. And through Elijah, raises up Elisha, the next in the great line of prophets who call God's people back to himself. So do you see how God worked in all of these stories? On the one hand, it's about God seeking them, but on the other hand, it's about God seeking so many more people through them. That's the constant threat. I'm seeking you, Moses, to redeem them. I'm seeking you, Adam and Eve, because I'm going to redeem all people. I'm seeking you, Rahab, to bless them. I'm seeking you, Samson, to redeem and reconcile and deliver them. We see this in those stories. We also see this in what is known as the Great Commission, right? This kind of central text that for thousands of years Christians have pointed to as the command to go and follow Jesus by making disciples. 
So Jesus, right? Matthew 28, he calls these men to follow him. He calls the disciples. He has sought them out when they were tax collectors and fishermen and zealots, rescued them, reconciled them, redeemed them. And here's his last words to them on earth. Matthew 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I've sought you, I've trained you, I've welcomed you, I've shown you how to follow me. Now go and teach others the same. Seeking you, because in seeking you, I'm also seeking them. So we know this from the stories in the Old Testament. We know this from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, but we also know this from our own stories. Let me, let me show you this. Let me put this into your own life. In 1981, my mom and dad got married, 22 and 19 years old, and they moved from Okabina, Minnesota to Aiken, South Carolina. When they got there, my dad started to work as an engineer at the Savannah River site, and he met a coworker, and that coworker was a follower of Jesus. He befriended my dad, got to know him, started building a relationship with him, and eventually said, I got to do more than just be his friend. I got to start talking to him about Jesus. And so he did what he only knew how to do. He gave him a book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. This book explains how Jesus was more than a carpenter. You get it. And he started reading through this book with my dad, and they started walking through it, and he started answering my dad's questions and pressing in and just loving him and pointing him to Jesus and never shying away from the fact that my dad was a sinner in need of a savior. And after months and months of this, my dad finally got sought by the Lord, and the Lord captured his heart, and he became a Christian. A few months later, he led my mom to the Lord. A few years after that, they had three sons. The first two were fine. The third was incredible. (laughs) And they prioritized us being among the family of God. I don't remember a Sunday growing up that we missed unless somebody was dying, like literally dying. We were in church, and so they taught us what it means to prioritize worshiping with God's people. They taught us what it means to be a Christian. They pushed through their own discomfort and fear, and you name it, all this stuff that that rises up even as you're trying to teach your kids about Jesus, and they were used by God to be ambassadors. God used them in my life to seek me and to get a hold of my heart and capture me and bring me back to himself. And at six years old, I put my faith in Jesus. I was baptized, and I understood the gospel. Fast forward two and a half decades later, I get the privilege to be a part of a group of people uprooting their lives and sacrificing an incredible amount of comfort and security and safety to be a part of this new church called Citizens. With a bunch of other people who at some point or another, God worked in their stories and the lives of other people to get a hold of them and to seek them out. And some of you in the room today are Christians because that group of people sacrificed to be here. Some of you in the room today have had your entire lives now and into eternity changed because someone sought this person who then sacrificed everything because they saw how much God had done for them, gave up their lives to be a part of this thing, and now you and your entire trajectory from now into eternity is changed. So track with me here. Some of you are Christians because in 1981, my dad's coworker became his friend. Some of you are Christians because my dad saw fit to seek someone, or God saw fit to seek someone who sought my dad, who sought me. Others of you are Christians not because of my story, but because somebody was faithful enough to be used by God to seek Garrison, or to seek Dan, or to seek Janessa, or to seek Tyler, or to seek Bryce, or to seek Esteban, or to seek Ellen. Like, fill in the blank with whoever the story is. This is how the gospel spreads. 
This is how the kingdom of God works. If you are in the room today and you would claim, I am a follower of Jesus, it's because somebody lived out 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Somebody said, this is the redeeming power of God for my life through somebody else. I'm going to go take seriously my identity as an ambassador. And then they led somebody else to the Lord. God got a hold of their life. And then they led somebody else to the Lord and so on and so on and so forth, such that now we are here worshiping Jesus in 2024 in Charlotte, North Carolina, with an unbroken chain of 2 Corinthians 5 leading all the way here. That's the beautiful nature of how the gospel spreads. That's why... It is so baffling to me when I hear Christians today say something like, I just don't think it's right to evangelize. Like, I have a lot of understanding for a lot of questions we wrestle with and doubts and uncertainties we have. This is the one question that just has never made sense to me, that we would say something like, I just don't think it's right. I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of prideful to think that we're, we know the only way, and I'm just not sure. And I mean, even one recent study that came out a few years ago that something like 47% of millennials would agree with the statement, it is wrong to share my faith with someone who doesn't agree and hopes that they will change their beliefs. 50% of Christian millennials think it's not right for me to share the gospel. And what's so baffling about that, and I understand our culture and our day and age and all that kind of stuff, but what's so baffling to me about that is that the whole reason you even have a faith to share is because somebody didn't agree with that position. Do you hear that? I don't think it's right to share my faith. Really, the only reason you have a faith is because somebody disagreed with that and shared their faith with you. The whole reason you are changed by Jesus is because somebody, a pastor, a friend, a coworker, a missionary, whoever, somebody shared the gospel with you and God got a hold of your heart and now you're saying, I just don't think it's right. When your entire life trajectory into eternity has been changed because somebody thought it was right. Not just right, but commanded, called, the responsibility of everyone. And so here's the call, church. We cannot let the gospel stop with us. We are, this has been said by so many people, it's not original to me, we are a conduit for the gospel, not a cul-de-sac. But what happens is we think, man, awesome, I love 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 19. I love how much God has done for me. I love that Christ has died for me. I love that he has reconciled me. I love that he has made me a new creation. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. I'm good. Go take a nap. God seeks to send. This is D. Elton Trueblood. He was a missionary in the early 1900s. He says it this way. Evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men or women. It is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. Church, the mission of God is not optional. It is not solely for the extroverted people person. It is not solely for those gifted in evangelism. It is not something you leave till you have time or are in the right season or can make it fit. It's for every person who has been caught up in the glorious, wonderful, redeeming, seeking love of God. So let me close here. Over the next six weeks, we are going to give you an incredible amount of missional training. It is going to blow your mind. It's going to be fantastic. Because here's why. I have one explicit goal over the next seven weeks. I'm just going to say it so that you know what I'm after as we journey through Lent together. My goal is to take away any excuse anyone in our church family would give that sounds something like, I don't share the gospel because I don't know how. I'm just going to take that excuse away from all of us. Or at least, you're not going to be able to say, because they didn't try to teach me how. (laughs) We're going to try. We're going to give you so much training and practical tips from everything from like, how do I make a friend to how do I share the gospel and everything in between. We're going to give you so much training. But here's what this means for us today. You will never want this. 
and you will never desire to step into the mission of God. You will never learn to live a missional life of demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel to people who don't yet know Jesus if your heart is not gripped with the beauty of the gospel. I did not like or want to participate in Pay It Forward back 10 years ago, driving through the Starbucks line because I did not think what was done for me was all that great. Pulling through the line, oh sweet, somebody paid $3, cool. That sounds great. The whole reason why I didn't like the trend, the whole reason why I didn't wanna participate in the trend is because I thought what was paid for me was not all that great. Do you know who loves pay it forward? The person with the $150 catering order? The person with the eight lattes for the bridal party? The person who bought like two croissants because that's how much croissants cost at Starbucks? The person who realizes I cannot believe how much was just paid for me is the person who gladly and willingly turns around and pays for somebody else. So here's what you have to grasp and grip at the level of your soul. If you want anything we're gonna talk about over the next six weeks, if you wanna actually step into the command of Jesus, not an optional suggestion, the command of Jesus to go and make disciples, the beauty of what God has done for you has to take hold of your life. But here's what I also know is that I am completely unable to make you care. It is like the distinct frustration of being a pastor, especially as someone who struggles with control. Like myself, Garrison, Dan, our ministry team, your community group leaders, your spouse, your best friend, they are completely unable to make you care about this. They just can't. They want to, I, man, they want to so badly. If they could snap their fingers and make you care about the gospel, they would do it in a heartbeat, but they cannot. You need the Holy Spirit. I've been in ministry long enough now to know no one can make you care but God himself. The Spirit of God has to break your heart. He has to pry your fingers one way or another off of your love for this world. He has to get you to understand that the kingdom of God is what lasts forever, not the kingdom of self. And he has to make you wrestle with the true reality that but by the grace of God, no one is saved. So what I wanna do as we close is I just wanna lead us into a time of prayer asking the Holy Spirit to do just that. Because I'm in, incapable of doing it, but the, God's word can do it and the spirit can do it. And so we're gonna ask that he would do it, that he would break our hearts for the gospel such that we come in next week heading into Lent ready to Tell me how, tell me how, I just gotta do it. Tell me how, I'm, I'm gonna do it anyway, even until you teach me the right way, I'm just gonna do it. But that only comes if the Holy Spirit breaks our hearts for what God has done. And so I'm gonna lead us into a time of prayer. Brent's gonna come back up just to help eliminate distractions, eliminate distractions, and I'm just gonna lead us. So if you would, if you wanna close your eyes, if you wanna open up your, your hands, whatever that may look like, I'm gonna lead us through just three, three prompts. As I was praying about it this week, I just sensed like there's gonna be three, three reactions that we're gonna have. And so I was, I'm just gonna, Give these, and, and you can let the Holy Spirit sort it out as you're praying. I invite you to be honest before the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. The first invitation is for those with fearful hearts. Do you know the Lord's calling me into this? He's commanded me to share the gospel, but it 
it's, maybe it's gone terribly in the past, or maybe you're just afraid and you're nervous and you, you don't want to be rejected. You don't want to lose a friend or a family member and you're just afraid. And so I just want to invite you, if that's where you're at, to bring that to the Lord. Come Holy Spirit. Maybe there's others of us in the room who just are cold. We don't, we don't care about what Christ has done. We, we want to care, but we don't even really care that we don't care. We trace that back as far as it goes. We're apathetic, tired. We need the Lord to renew a sense of desire and devotion within us. So if that's you, I just invite you to offer that to the Lord. And still yet for others, our hearts are still downcast. We're still wrestling with Elijah and everything Karrison said last week. We're still struggling. We're, I can't step into this. I'm just trying to figure out my own heart. I think God's inviting you to find healing in him, not for healing's sake, not so you can sit on the sidelines and go, sweet, I'm healed, awesome. That's so you can get back on the field be used by him in the glorious advancement of his kingdom. So if that's where you're at, downcast, despondent, despaired, offer that up to the Lord, not just for healing's sake, but so that he can heal you and then use you in power to further his kingdom. Lord, we need you to do what only you can do. Lord, we need you to make us in love with you. Overwhelmed by the goodness of the gospel, Lord, our hearts are so quick to grow cold, apathetic, tired, busy. Lord, we want to be like the person your son teaches us about, who knows the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. He sees it, he sells everything he has to buy the land. Lord, we want to be a seek first the kingdom kind of people. That leverage everything we have, everything we are, for the sake of your kingdom. Break us with the reality of 2 Corinthians 5, that you sought us through someone else. Lord, you want to use us in your plan to seek more. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's glorious name. Amen.